And I'm not trying mm. to oversimplify it because there are definitely processes and systems in place and coaching and oversight and client management. But most of that gets solved by bringing in the right people. Richard. Yes, Paul. How are you? My dear partner and friend. Good to see you. Good to see you. So look, we have a very special guest today. Oh, I love guests. This is a dynamic person from a competitor agency from another firm, much mm-hmm. like ours, called Robots and Pencils. Mm-hmm. And we have to talk about what that all means. But this is someone who does what we do. And we've gotten to know this person. We were introduced to a mutual friend simply because it's like, I think literally it was, you all kind of run your mouths in the same way. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Something like that. It turns out we do. We're, we're corporate leadership who should... Maybe not talk as much as we do, but you're not going to change us at this this stage. Tracy Zimmerman, welcome to Track Changes, the official podcast of Postlight. Thank you for having me, Paul. I mean, I think that's the kind of introduction I really appreciate. Another leader that runs their mouth too much. I think it's the most accurate introduction I've ever had. So thank you for having me as your guest. And I totally agree with our friend. He is right. Very similar talking DNA. Yeah, exactly. Tracy, tell us about robots and pencils, which is sounds like a daycare center, but go. Ooh. <laughs> That is the first time I've ever been, I've gotten that comment before. So thank you for your creativity. I appreciate it. I'm not surprised. <laughs> not surprised given, uh, you know, your, your street cred. Um, but yeah, Robots oh, and is similar to Postlight, like you said. I mean, we're we're definitely working in the same space. You're bigger. You're bigger. You are, right? You're... For now, it seems like you guys are growing pretty fast. So maybe we, we'll see. Really, that's what, all I do is wake up every day and go, how am I, I'm going to, robots and pencils, they're going to feel the heat. But yes, I think you're like twice our size. We're, we are, as of this week, I think 216 people. What about you guys? We're, we're 90 edging on a hundred. Yeah. So, so twice our size. So good. Finally, somebody we can learn from on this podcast. Sometimes we teach what to do and sometimes we teach what not to do. By the way, if you want to reach out to robots and pencils, it's hello at (laughs) postlight.com. (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah no no it's, we'll take we'll take care of all those leads all right so wait, wait tell us what kind of work give us like a couple of yes. like highlights of the work robots and pencils does we build digital products with our clients we work very closely with them to try to understand where there's really kind of high value use cases lots of impact for their business and that we try to really work with them as well to do sort of the right solutions um, we tend to be kind of on the edge. Like we started with doing mobile app development before there was an app store. That's our our founding story. That's in our DNA. And so we try to stay ahead of the curve, sort of harnessing great design and great engineering and, and bring it to the table for our clients. So we really have the humanities and sciences working closely together. So we are not a daycare center. We are a center of excellent uh, digital product builds. So our, our robots are our engineers. So they are like our scientists and our pencils are our designers, UX, information architecture. So our whole kind of promise is they work together to give you the best outcomes. And mm. that's not a daycare center. I think that's an overlap here in that, and this is something we tell people, is that design and engineering are not walled off as different services groups, but actually work very closely together. Is that the case at Robots and Pencils? Yeah, totally. And both first-class citizens, right? So that's our, our founding. The first, the co-founders were a robot and a pencil. And so it's always been that way. You know, a lot of firms that are in our competitive space, it's like they had a bunch of developers who like, oh my gosh, we need some good designers. Or it was like a design agency and everything's artistic and they've got quote, code yeah. monkeys in the back. 
Whereas yeah. ours are very level playing field and very integrated like delivery as well. It's like looking in a mirror, like I'm looking at the headers on your website and it's just like work, expertise, about, we have labs and you have fun labs and we have insights and you have blog. I think this is worth noting, right? Because it's like each company picked this place in the marketplace. First of all, I don't know if we've actually gone up against you on anything, but like there's actually enough room in our particular part of this world because it's mm-hmm. so badly under serve this kind of like I can build you the whole product. Well, I think it's more I think it's more than that. I think we're going to work through the problems together. That's right. Right? Try some things. This is a 200 person company. We're close to 100 now, but like you're looking I'm looking at your the website right? and the brands are big. It's like Microsoft and Warner Brothers and Nike and we have the same thing and it's it's interesting cuz babies like us, you know, at this size and we are tiny companies compared to giant services firms. Just unbelievably small, but the big orgs still need us. Why are they going with you instead of the firm that's, you know, 150 times bigger and and really knows Sitecore and so on and so forth? Where do you come in? Related to that, just to tack on to that question, who is that? Who's coming to you? What's the roles that are coming to you? Well, actually, I'll answer Rich's question first, because I think it frames it up a little bit. I kind of archetype the client that comes to us. I call that person the frustrated innovator. Frustrated innovators are all around us. They tend to be, in in our experience, many times they're PL leaders. So they're line leaders, they're in the business. We do work with CIOs, of course, um, sometimes as a primary contact, sometimes as a secondary contact. But often what's happening to our, our clients is they have a great idea to either you know grow their business, be more competitive in their marketplace, and have an innovation project, or they have a way that they really think they could cut costs if they got a better system. And they're just not able to get it done for whatever reason. Often it's because there's just so many other things going on inside of an organization and they can't get the work prioritized, right? That's particularly true in the enterprise or even the mid-market. We also do quite a bit of work with startups and that's like a whole, you know, and it's similar, but it's a different ballgame because, you know, then you really become whatever they need at that point in their, like you're either their whole outsource team, sometimes we're co-delivering with them, sometimes we're helping them interview and hire people, so pretty flexible. Do you will you take equity? Do you build with them, or is it like how does that work in your world? No comment. No comment is fine. <laughs> no comment is fine. No, we get we get asked a lot, and it's sort of like I mean we're always open to the conversation, but it's just hard to do. It seems like a brilliant idea, and my team brings it up all the time. Like, why don't we just take equity in this in this startup? So the answer is we have sometimes done that as part of our pay. We mm-hmm. typically sure, don't want to sure. put. We typically don't want to put a lot at risk. So we have a payroll that we have to make. Like we're a, we're a bootstrap business like you guys are. And so it's a yep. different business model. And at the end of the day, the thing that's difficult about taking, you know, the equity is mo- like we, we can guarantee the product will get done and delivered if we have all the mm. levers. And, mm. and we often don't. And then, you know, even the product's delivered, there's a lot of other dependencies, whether they're regulatory or go-to-market marketing you know, mm. leadership team on the client side, et cetera. So it's not, it's not impossible, but we don't do it very often. We have done it sometimes. And we also, you know, can try to be flexible in terms of sometimes terms and things like that. Like we get what yeah. they're managing with cash flow. That's, but it's a little bit we have the exact we're in the exact same spot. Like it it's just it's funny because I think people just assume that it's the smartest thing you could ever do. And it's like no, that's literally why there are VC firms. That's why like it's then I have two jobs. I don't have time and energy to manage a portfolio of possibly interesting investments. And that's really, it's an awkward thing, I think, for people to hear. They just kind of assume that it's like my, and especially because 
when they come and they pitch and they're entrepreneurs and they're so excited and they're like, and aren't you going to help us build this? And it's like, I I just, I have two things, two points to that. Cause obviously you've been around this block a lot. So one is the kind of thing I said before, which is hard to manage the outcomes. There's a lot of project risk in the beginning. That's just true of anything you're building, especially the more custom it is, the more true it is. You go in the startup marketplace, they might pivot three or four times before they even do their first release. You guys know that. But the other half of that is, We do have our own internal products that we experiment with. So we have a methodology that we call Fun Labs that we use to kind of essentially bet on our team's ideas, right? And so now I do see next generation of firm. I would love to do more, you know, shared equity arrangements, co-development, things like that. We're just not there yet. But so sometimes when I go, look, startup founder, you're basically competing for my team's ideas. And we have incubated and spun out some successful products and I believe we'll do more and more. So like we, you know, built missions inside of robots and pencils and then Slack bought it and integrated it in his workflow builder. And so we want to continue to kind of bet on our team's ideas or have some kind of shared equity with existing clients. It's hard with startups, right? Because startups like that is their IP, that is their idea. Yep. So they're not the best position to give up any ownership either. How do you decide what to build in labs? What's your process? It's a great question. Um, so with Fun Labs, which is our, our current uh, mechanism, it's pretty complicated. Um, it was designed by game designers, and it was designed to solve the problem we had at the time, which was we were funding some of the team's ideas, and nobody knew how or why, right? So somebody was sort of petitioning the executive team. We were going, okay, fine. You can work on this for a while. It, as we grew, you know, it was kind of hearsay, and people were like, oh, they're working on their cool product idea. What's going on with that? I want to be part of that. How come you're not finding my idea? I'm like, well, what's your idea? Right. So we created this mechanism. We have a structure. We build it into our budget. Basically, you know, there's a pitch competition. The criteria for, for selection is partially shaped by the executive team, but also just shaped, you know, bottoms up from the marketplace. And people have a competition. The ideas get voted on by the team. Everyone. Votes. Everyone gets a vote. And the way it, you have coins to vote with, and the longer you've been there, the more coins you get. Yeah. Well, or it's way you can also vote with your coin that says, if this project gets picked, I want to be on the team that gets oh. to be on it. Mm-hmm. We've actually conceived a next generation that we would keep something like Fun Labs, which is it's more technically risky stuff. It may or may not have a strong go to market. We actually have discussed something internally that we're working on that would be market labs. And market labs would have to have more of a strong go to market but it also could potentially have different tranches of funding. Maybe there's potential to co-invest with clients. So that's something that we're working on this year too. But at least we have something out there that the team understands. When a new frustrated innovator shows up and you've spent 30 minutes on that first call and you've gotten to know the person, what are the things that stand out to you that make you think this person's going to figure it out? This is going to end up being a success. Like what are the characteristics of a frustrated innovator that pulls it off and then I want to take a darker turn and talk about the characteristics because we've all seen it too, right? We, we can't say, God, you know, Dave, that's just one of the worst ideas I've ever heard. And we're an agency. We'd love your business. We're not going to say that, right? So what are the traits of a stakeholder that leads to success? And what are the traits that, that don't? Yeah, I, I think it's a great question. It's interesting because I think the answers are on the two extremes. So they either have previous successful experience working with tech teams, or they have almost no experience and they're willing to fully fully trust the team. Either one works. The ones Mm. in between are hard, right? Where they're just like, Mm. oh, I know a lot about tech, but you know, I have a terrible agency, I've been burned and this is how I'm going to manage it now. 
it just gets hard, right? It's kind of like trust issues in a relationship. Um, mm. So it's better for them to either really trust the team or be very integrated in the team and have mm. a good, and, and they're, they're then if they are experienced, then their sort of way they do projects needs to be close to how we do it. It doesn't need to be exactly the same, but we need mm-hmm. to have a similar philosophy. Oh, okay. So this is a key point. Either trust us and let us run, or if you're experienced and you know the work dynamic around good product efforts, then that can work. You need to see either of those. If there is somewhere in the middle, it gets jammed up. It gets scrambled up and it brings increased risk. Is that is that your read? I mean, yeah. It's more about saying like, no, we don't need a project manager on this. I believe yeah. in having like a product owner who does everything. And again, like I'm not trying to get into the specifics, but they'll yeah, half architect yeah. the solution. It's like the worst. This is our world too. A huge tell that you're in trouble is when they go, well, do we really need product management? Because we have we have people over here who can do that. And you're like, uh-oh. Because yeah, then it's a sign they may not know what they're buying or why. It's interesting because even inside of our company, I've kind of posed this thing to my executive team. I said, you know, I think we're getting to the point where we need to say, when we take project work, like, and it's okay to integrate client team members, but they need to run our methodology. They essentially need to quote, report to us when it comes to delivery of the product. Uh Um, And they need to, if they're going to give us, say, a product owner, then that person needs to do exactly what R&P's product owners do. And then we also need to put an R&P partial person to mentor that person to de-risk the Mm. project, right? Mm -hmm. Or if you say, hey, we want to bring two back-end architects, well, then you know, we need to be doing it unless they're just handing us APIs, ideally mm. that are already done, documented and performant, then, mm. you know, that's a little bit different. But if they're bringing yeah. their integrated team, because I understand why clients might want to integrate their team members. I actually mm. think it's good if you can make it work. What I'm hearing is this is in the spirit of, frankly, protecting the team in a lot of ways. It's protecting the client from having their project fail. Oh, she did a judo move, Paul. Look, the fantasy of the agency is that I will buy interchangeable humans and I will be able to sort of like get a thing as a result. And it, it just doesn't. There are agencies that sell you humans. And and I think one of the, the, the common things between Robots and Pencils and Postlight is that that's not our value prop, right? Our value prop is not bodies, though bodies are involved, that to, to just purely augment teams, but rather to solve a problem in a discrete, holistic way, right? I mean, I think that's a big difference. There are plenty of firms out there that just give you capacity, hard and clean capacity. No, I mean, we're, we're the relationships. We're the, you know, it's this sort of like years and years of being, being a friend. Well, preformed teams is how I say it, right? We bring preformed teams to the table because mm. a lot of, I mean, the work that we're doing, that we're collectively, right? Your, your firm and ours, by its nature, it's, it's high risk. It has uncertainty in it. Um, there's constant change under our feet all the time. That's the industry that we build in, the environment we build yeah. in, and our clients yeah. to be, you know, are constantly. The marketplace changes so quickly that um, even on the needs discovery, you know, product market fit side, that's changing all the time too. So one of the best things that we can do to de-risk a project is we bring preformed teams. I know if I've been working with Paul for years, I know how he works. You put us on a team together, and we're more likely to be successful. So when, when we're talking to, with clients, like one of my roles is I kind of oversee mm. the overall, I'm an orchestrator of the organization. And to me, I, I also have seen a lot. So it's easier for me because of my experience to kind of see what's predict what's going to work. And now what we're trying to mm-hmm. do is we grow the company. Like I said, we're already 216 people. There are other people besides me who understand mm. those things. We're literally, we literally have a quarterly rock we're working on right now. That is to figure out a systematic de-risking. Wait, a, qu- a quarterly what? 
a rock. It's just like a, an imperative quarterly goal. We use this- no, no, but come on, come on. We got to break that acronym down for the people. That's R O. It's R O Q Q. By the way, Paul, if you. <laughs> Rocks are just quarterly goals. And so we set three to seven at the senior executive team level, and then they propagate through the organization, right? So one of our rocks this quarter is to figure out how do we create like essentially a risk matrix around how projects get assigned. Like we have project risk stuff, of course, like we're mature in project management Mm -hmm. methodology, but this is more about who are the right people on a project at the right time. Like this goes beyond, hey, I need a senior level architect. I need a lead this and that. I need a UX person and an artist. It's more about like, I need a cheerleader. I need not a new person. I need a new person. Uh, Right. So we're trying to get to the next level of talent allocation and and really building the right teams for our clients to also de-risk their project. Like it's a people business and that part's not easy. Like what we're trying to do is not easy. I think it's I think it's interesting the team keeps saying this project is on track because I'll be interested to see what comes out the other side. But we're trying to just formalize what we've seen because it starts with like instinct and then it becomes like, why did you guys do that again? We know when you X that we get Y. We are at a place where we are formalizing process around delivery, around the practical parts of the organization. But we haven't, aside from charter and and a few other things, we don't formalize and create process around culture, right? And that is kind of what you're describing to me, which is really interesting, which is, no, well, that's called, certain... that's called fascism, Paul. No, no. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, well, now we're having a totally different conversation. It's very exciting. No, I mean that, you know, how do we create the right cultural mix to make the engagement, especially on the bigger ones, that makes a ton of sense. We do it. It's just very, we don't talk about it except in a kind of instinctual, like, well, you know, you know, it would really help here kind of way. Right. We need a Sarah. We need a Mike. Like people, yeah, like, that's right. especially when you're that's smaller, right. everyone knows what that means. Well, we yeah. have outgrown that. Right. And so yeah. we're trying to formalize that because it's not just. <laughs> it's also sad because you get those star performers and then you just demolish their lives. You split them into little tiny pieces. Yeah. <laughs> Because right. yeah, those are the you only know those five names, and then it's the worst thing ever because the boss says, "You know who should be on this," and then that that person slowly is melting into like a a ball of lead. Yeah, okay. We're big enough that we have gone through that and back through it several times. So, like when I first joined, we were small enough that like basically everyone was on a couple projects, and people weren't sliced. Then you grow, and then people get sliced. Then people freak out, and somebody quotes deep work to you, and then you consolidate mm. them again. And then you right. do it again. And so actually we're doing, we, we have some rules around like people can't, you know, depending on the project type, they either need to be fully allocated or no more than two projects. There's a lot of rules like that here now, but it actually goes beyond, like it is about the levels and the timing. It's the reality is it's complicated, especially if the projects are high risk. This does not really come into play, you know, kind of release two or release three you know, you already know. So we're trying uh-huh. to, instead of testing in production, we're trying to take what we know and forecast and, you know. This is something to educate potential clients about, which is the difference between I need to make get this thing either like back on rails, but it exists and the data is here. And, so, and the greenfield effort and the kind of risks and the kind of teams and the kind of people involved, because that, that actually ends up being something really hard to educate people about, which is that that, that kickoff team that's going to run for the first six months even if it's a big project that has a big, ambitious, you know, product roadmap, after that phase, you need new kinds of humans doing new kinds of things. Totally true. Because actually, 
And again, we're working on our matrix. I'll share it with you guys when it's done. I love a matrix. Paul loves matrix. Oh yeah, matrices. matrices. Right, there are definitely people out there, and I'm I was more like this when you know I was in a doing work role where it's like I like to start stuff. I like when it's new. Once things get to two or three releases in, you know, I'm kind of looking for the next thing, which is great. We need those kinds of people in the organization, and then you need the maintainers, and then it also opens up. At what point, if we are transitioning it to clients or you have a shared team? Who comes in when? If we can be better at those recommendations, again, I'm pretty, because of my experience on the client side, I am more open, I think, than a lot of companies are to bringing in client teams. I just think it has to be de-risked. And if actually, the the thing that I'm working with my company is I want to get to the point where we go, well, if you're not going to kind of use this type of methodology and use our, like, that's fine. Everything's time and materials. You guys are directing the project. It's not because we're like, angry or anything. It's just like, we have a proven process. We know how to build digital products. If a client thinks they have a better way, that's fine, but we can't also be on the hook for the deliverable, right? We can continue to advise, but at some point, hey, you take my methodology and slice it into pieces. It's not my methodology anymore. It's client managed. And so that's some of the things we've been talking about in our organization. This is tricky because large orgs, like, I mean, at some level, they kind of buy process and we sell delivery. Right. And you're, you're just like, no, you, you actually want us to build the thing for you for real. I promise. But they get really hung up on, on you know, their particular brand. They think they're or, mitigating risk with the process. Right. They think they right. get to, to get they get to constantly perpetually audit the whole thing as time goes by, which can be debilitating and demoralizing depending on how it's done. I think this goes back to trust. Right. And, and one of the things we try to walk clients away from is. Don't get hung up on the headcount. Like it's kind of meaningless sometimes. And we want to flex and we want the flexibility to actually cake on people if it needs to happen and then pull them off if it if it makes sense. And that take it takes everyone a minute to kind of what am I buying here? What do you mean you're not gonna tell me? What, what's this range you gave me of three to ten people? Like that's insane, right? But what we're saying is it's secondary, is that it's actually logistics and, and what's primary is what you're gonna get. That takes time for someone you just met takes less time for someone that knows how you work, right? And, and I'm sure a lot of your business, Tracy, is, is recurring with relationships you've built over the years where they come back to you again and again. I mean, no doubt. So wait, Tracy, how did you get this job? Give us a little bit of, of a summary of how, how you ended up here. And where is here? Well, I'm, I'm in my office in Pittsburgh today. And actually, I'm, I'm proud to report a number of my team members are here too. So it's been awesome to see humans lovely Pittsburgh, in real life. Yeah, yeah, it's lovely. So it's it's interesting you ask me that because I often say to the team, especially when they're telling me about the interview process, that I would never get a job here if I had to go through our interview process. So <laughs> it's good. It's good I got here sort of early on. I'm like, every role, I'm like, maybe I could do this one. Then they tell me what they're doing. And I'm like, yeah, probably not. So it worked <laughs> out. But I I was um I was hired by the co-founders of Robots and Pencils six years ago um, to come in and to help them to grow and scale the company. And so I, I really came in in the president role. We were, you know, fast growing around 70 some people at that time. I think up from, you know, we'd already grown, uh, I think, 100% that year, you know, like kind of we, the company had gotten a large client and was growing on this large client. And so all of a sudden they needed more process and more infrastructure. And, you know, it was just, a, it was a small company at the time. So I came in and jumped into kind of the deep end and, tried to help the company grow. So around some specific projects, methodology, like you were talking about, Paul, that was kind of the first generation of trying to get some more structure. 
sure. um, and scaling the company up. And then, you know, so basically I, I took over as CEO at the end of last year. It was the end of a successful transition. I worked very closely with the, you know, CEO, the co-founders, um, but particularly the CEO. And he kind of passed the baton last year. So, I mean, it's been... It's been a super interesting experience. I kind of got here and I, I saw what needed to be done and I helped to grow the company. So there were a number of things like we were very, we were very reliant on a single client. I mean, kind of all the normal stuff that happens with companies when they are, you know, growing fast. The other thing I'm really just proud of is I think we, you know, the company is really founded with a talent first mentality, which doesn't mean like we have developers running the books or something. You know, it, it just means that we're trying to solve for the talent first because we get the right people and provide sort of the right environment. We believe they'll solve the problems. And that's always been true with the company. And we've stayed true to that. It's hard to do that actually in a professional services environment. It requires, you know, constant compromise and trade-off management, working very closely with the team. But that's really the the mental model. And in the in the talent wars we're now in more than ever, I feel happy that we've done what we've done so far. I want to t- take the last few minutes to actually take a hard left here and get your thoughts and your what you've learned about making a successful remote work organization work because that's a lot on a lot of people's minds now. Pre-pandemic, robots and pencils was fairly distributed. Is that fair to say? It's very. Yeah. So you're 200 people. You're in how many cities or locations? I mean, in terms of where we have offices or where we have people. Oh, okay. Answer both of those because I think that's an, that's interesting. So we have we have five offices and we have city we have people like I don't know 130. 20. I mean, no, yeah. it's more than that. I mean, unless you say metros, because we have we have talent across Canada, the U.S., and then a small team we just started this year in actually in Mexico. And even in Mexico, we have like six people and they're not all in the same. Place. They're not in the same place. Yeah. How do you make it work? Like, what what are the things? I mean, because there are people now who are grappling with this who never grappled with it even pre-pandemic, right? Right. Yeah. And I mean, I I had did not have the experience in leading remote teams before I came here, although I had always worked in sort of a flexible work environment. So I, I remember what it was like. I would say the number one thing is, you know, yes, Slack is our client, our partner, but like first Slack solved our problem of working across all these different locations. Mm-hmm. Slack is Robots and Pencils headquarters. Absolutely. It's where all the people are. It's where we can work together on projects. It's where we build culture. Of course, there are other things, but that is number one, is actually starting with digital and distributed workforce first is like a mental Mm. model that I think Mm. then just removes a lot of problems. And people are just, I've had people say to me, well, does your Austin team, you know, deliver all the Texas projects? And I'm literally like, right. But like, when you think about it, we're really solving for the talent first. So I see my role to my clients, I'm going to bring you the best team regardless mm-hmm. of where they are. Um, so yeah, I would say that, you know, making Slack the headquarters has been the number one thing. And it's the only way mm-hmm. I kind of keep track of everything that's going on. Mm-hmm. I do believe, and I did before the pandemic, I do now still believe in sort of a hybrid environment in the uh-huh. sense that like, we will keep our, we'll continue to have offices. We'll probably open more offices. So we've hired a lot of people in Toronto, probably open office there. You know, again, when it makes sense, obviously we're not going to open it like when nobody can come in, you know, we'll probably open other locations too, but it starts with where we hired people so it's kind mm-hmm. of bottoms up versus top down because mm-hmm. meeting in person is actually really important. But it, meeting in the office every day is to me is not important at all. I mean, I think I had my yeah. first work from home job. I was like 20. Do you gather everyone? We do. So, so I, actually, like I said, I'm at the Pittsburgh office today. Well, I mean, obviously, again, I'll, I'll speak pre-pandemic right now. So where people are in an office region, typically we're at least doing something, an event a month that's more social. It might be 
you know, happy hour. It could be a team breakfast. We also do stand-ups by office. We also have a remote office stand-up. So the remote mm-hmm. office is also a first-class citizen at Robots and Pencils and is really our largest office, right, by number of people. And so we try to do everything that we do for the in-office stuff with the remote people too. And then sometimes people go, I live down the street from Pittsburgh, but I never come in. I'm doing the remote office. And we're kind of like, whatever. Or they can be both. Mm-hmm. You know, we just, mm-hmm. we're not, we're mm-hmm. not super rulesy. It's more about helping the team to feel connected. Um, we mm-hmm. do do a conference every couple of years that we call RoboCon, where we take everyone from the entire company and fly them into one location. And we basically work, learn, and play together for a week. I'm hoping that we can schedule one soon. I mean, it's difficult, particularly with the Canadian team, as you know, they haven't, they're not, they don't have as much freedom to move uh, yet. Right. As the right, US right, team. Right, right. But so I, well, you know, it's a lot of logistics to fly everybody into one place, but we've done several of those. And that's, you know, you're trying to create connection. But at the end of the day, we, again, we're trying to solve for the talent. So where the talent thinks they can do their best work is where they should work. So some people do come in the office, like religiously every day. But those people are like, can I have special permission to come in while the office is closed? I don't, I don't like to work from home. How do you factor in what the client wants to see, right? Because that's a concern for us. Like how we, you know, we have our nice New York City office and the clients like to visit. They they want to, they want to come and have a cup of coffee. Like how, how does that play into your thinking? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, we have offices, so we can right. bring our clients to our offices. Generally speaking, we spend more time going to the client's location mm. and to the client's offices. I know when I was a client, I almost never wanted to go to my partner's offices because it required me to go there, get coverage of my stuff. I mean, we like it, right? Because we get their undivided attention. But as a client, it can be, you're adding a lot of overhead. We try to be like, what is best? I mean, I'm not saying you're not. You guys are cool. You're in New York City. Your clients are probably like, uh, get me so out of cool. my corporate we're not, office. We're, we're not young like you are, but we're cool. we're still right. really cool. In fact, older. Actually, it's worth yeah, noting. Much it's older. older. Yeah. yeah. Um, much cooler. Much cooler. So we're kind of like, you know, peers. But it, it, some of that's also <laughs> regional, right? What's the culture? But yeah, no, I've seen a lot of success I, there. I, and we also do a lot of business like, you know, in other networking ways, whether it's dinners or lunches or briefings and things like that. And those are sort of wherever. So so the presence has to happen. The presence has to happen. It's just that the office isn't the default. It, yes. And in fact, I would say it's almost like, you know, it's almost like the third most likely option, right? So from the talent's perspective, we just, again, we want them to be productive where they are. And and I always say to the team, I'm like, look, 99% of the time, I'm going to give you so much flexibility, you can't even stand it. Every once in a while, I'm going to call you on a Sunday night and ask you to get on a plane and be at a client's office on Monday morning. I have never had a problem with somebody doing that because we try to be so accommodating to them. But from a delivery perspective, my clients, Paul, I couldn't do that if I didn't screen for culture on the way in and hire people that could really lead themselves. They themselves will say to me, Hey, I'm going to fly in. I decide it's Sunday night. They're telling me, right. Hey, FYI, I'm going to client site on Monday morning. I booked my travel, you know, let me know if you want to talk or whatever, because they're trying to solve the client's problems too. I want to just, I think there's New York city. And then I think there's everywhere else, uh, just in terms of there's no way post site would be where it is today without us having planted a flag where we did in the middle of New York city. Like it's just, we should just say it out loud. Well, if you yeah. want, I can um, put my, I can put my logo on your door and then we can see if me having a New York city office, that's big and fancy <laughs> like yours, which I love by the way, helps my company to grow. So we could test that in production if you want. You know, why not? What the hell at this point? Yeah. Like, let's just, 
do companies even matter anymore? You know, yeah. just what, what also, is a brand? If you, if, if you want to reach out to Tracy, it's robotsandpencils at postlight.com. <laughs> That's right. No, in all seriousness, Tracy, how how do they re- how do we how do people reach out to robots and pencils? And I guess they could just visit the site, but you tell us. Yeah, they can visit the site or they can email us at hello at robotsandpencils.com. We're on we're on every social media channel, LinkedIn, cool. etc. This was great. Tracy, a lot of good insights here. Um, it's fun to overlap. There aren't a lot of us. We, we we like Paul and I like to look each other in the eyes and talk about how special and exceptional post light is, but there really aren't a lot. Who do you consider Light a nice candle? We go out for dinner. It's great. Who do you consider competition? I mean, we typically will compete against, you know, people like you guys, like whoever's kind of used in that marketplace and then the big guys. So it'll be like Deloitte Digital, us and whoever's local. Yeah, it's so Mm. weird. We have the same boat where it's just sort of like, you know, a couple likely suspects. The problem for us, though, is whoever's local is... New York City. <laughs> so it's a yeah. lot. <laughs> There's a lot. Yeah. yeah. But, but I do think, works. by the way, I do think you guys are very similar to us. And I, I, I'm not saying there's not on the inside, right? Because a lot of times on the outside, you're like, oh, they have design and engineering. They build digital products. Yeah, we do that mm-hmm. too. But mm-hmm. having talked yeah. to you guys, I do think we're very similar on the inside. I agree. No, I, I agree too. I mean, it's, it's fascinating to see where you're at, where you're trying to make the culture scale as much as sort of the processes. We're headed in that direction, but we have a minute. I think you're, you're already there. So it's good to, good to know what's coming. Patrick Lencioni no. said, the only sustainable differentiator is culture. And I believe that for a very long time. And because, you know, even your processes, whatever, it's going to have to be, you need your culture to keep them. Otherwise, they become dumb rules that everybody hates or doesn't follow or they follow. And like, I checked the box. I did the project audit. I don't know how it got from red or from green to red so fast. There's never any yellows here. Well, that that's when you get from 200 to like 500. That's when that shows up. That's the hard one. (laughs) Okay, good. You'll be the one. We'll keep talking and we'll figure (laughs) out how that won't happen when you get to 500. That'll be the next podcast. All right. Sounds awesome. Well, thank you guys so much. It's been awesome being on the podcast with you today. This was a lot of fun. Thank you, Tracy. This was great. If somebody wanted to talk to you directly, Tracy, or just follow you on in the world, what what's the best way to get in touch? Uh, they can email me. My email address is tz at robotsandpencils.com. Just because robotsandpencils.com is so long, I had to shorten the, the front. Oh, it's fair. It's totally fair. <laughs> fair it's enough. good, though. All right, great. And everybody knows how to get in touch with us. Send us an email, hello at postlife.com. Check out our website, robotsandpencils.com. And uh, <laughs> that was great. I am fascinated. It's fascinating to see exactly how we come to the same conclusions trying to do good work for our many clients. It's the same. Everybody needs the same thing. They just need to listen. Listen to Tracy. Yeah. And you yeah. guys. Oh, it's fine. That's nice. It's nice of you to it's say a big so. world. That's all right. Well, <laughs> you know, we're a little older. All right. <laughs> On that note. It's been great. Bye, Tracy. Thank you. Thank you.